You're listening to a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. For more info about Grace, please go to www.graceorange.org. And now, join us as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Good morning. So good to gather around the Word of God. Please open your copy of the Bible. To Ephesians chapter 2. That's what we're going to be today. We were there a couple weeks ago as well. Today is the third of the five solas of the Protestant Reformation. Sola fide, faith alone. How God graciously saves us through the gift of faith alone. We're going to see today what it means to be saved by grace alone through faith alone. Now we all know that life is short. And I know some of you are like, no, it's actually taking a really long time, Okay. Uh, life is short, eternity is long, and you have to answer this question. How can I be made right with God? How can I get to heaven? Uh, is it totally God's work, or is there something that I need to bring to the table? Is there something that I need to do? The answer is embedded in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I've got some amazing gospel riches there. We're going to focus on some biblical concepts here that will help us understand faith alone. We're going to look at sin, we're going to look at faith, and we're going to look at good works. So please stand with me. I'm going to read just three verses today. Very well known. Many of you have these verses memorized. If you were in Awana, you, don't, you totally had them memorized. If you're an Awana leader, you better have them memorized. <laughs> so Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Lord, I pray that you would have your way in our hearts today. I pray you'd open our eyes that we'd see wonderful things in your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat, please. Ephesians was written to a church that was started by Priscilla and Aquila. It was strengthened by Paul on his third journey. We see that in Acts chapter 19. He pastored there for three years. After he left, Timothy came in and shepherded that flock for about a year and a half. And Timothy encountered uh, some false teachers and possibly even elders in that church, Hymenaeus and Alexander and others. And the church was plagued by fables and endless genealogies and by unscriptural ideas such as forbidding marriage or telling people they couldn't eat certain kinds of food. And what happened was that these false teachers, they taught these these ungodly interpretations of Scripture with confidence, even though they misunderstood the Bible. And it produced some harmful disputes in that church rather than godly edification in the faith. And so Paul is writing to, to encourage and to admonish the church. He's reminding believers of their immeasurable riches they have in Christ. And not only to be thankful for those blessings, but but to live in a manner worthy of them, as, as Brian brought out so well in Colossians 1 last week, that we are to walk in a manner worthy. 
And because of the great blessings in Christ, we're to, we're, we're to resist the temptation to congratulate ourselves for anything that might happen and to get, or to get complacent. Well, here's Paul. He's writing to first century Christians who are struggling with their identity, struggling with who they are in Christ, and they're battling ungodly pressures. They're battling threats against the gospel. And there was a temptation to redefine and to misunderstand biblical truth. And so they, what they needed to do was use the right words in the right way. So do we. Now we're looking at the five solas, and some of you might ask, why are we looking at the five solas? Why are we looking at the, the scriptural truths that according to scripture alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone? Well, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation gives us a good footing for that. It's this year. Perfect time to learn or review some easily neglected or misunderstood Bible doctrines. Um, but that also there's continuing conflicts over what the Bible actually teaches. Not just, it didn't just happen in the 1500s, it's happening today. And if we don't learn from history, we're bound to repeat its mistakes, right? So we need to learn what happened before us, and the Bible tells us to learn from those who've gone before us. As Hebrews says, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the outcome of their life, imitate their faith. Now we looked at the first two already, sola scriptura, scripture alone, how God has revealed himself in his supreme and sufficient word. We saw how it is from God, it's inspired, it's totally true, infallible, and without error, inerrant. So we ought to treasure it, we ought to obey it, we ought to trust it, and, and it's really the idea of truth versus lies. Secondly, we saw sola gratia, grace alone, and how salvation is by God's unmerited grace alone, that God initiates and changes our hearts and determines our destiny of his own good pleasure, chooses whom he will save. It's the idea of grace versus merit. You don't deserve what you've received in Christ. And so today we're looking at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, and sola fide, faith alone, the idea of how God graciously saves us through the gift of faith alone. The key word is through, through the gift of faith alone. And the idea here is about faith versus works. So not grace versus merit where you don't deserve it, but also you can't work for it. There's nothing you can do for your salvation to be earned. And you'll notice, too, that the middle three solas here are about the nature of salvation, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ, so by, through, and in, and they're interrelated. So next week we'll be looking at uh, salvation uh, in Christ alone. And it's like studying the different facets of a beautiful diamond, and, and they're, they're all interrelated. In fact, even... In the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2, which I mentioned a, a couple weeks ago, is like Romans in 10 verses. We see grace, faith, Christ, and we actually see the glory of God all in those verses. Uh, it tells us that, that grace and faith that save are not of our own deserving, they're not of our own doing, and they're gifts of God in Christ alone, and it's for the praise of his glory. So you see four of the five solas just right here. One of the reasons why this is so important is because salvation by, by 
faith alone in Christ um, is often ignored, it is often distorted, it is often denied by people who call themselves evangelical Protestants. And, and many people are reluctant to think theologically. If, you, if you're going to think theologically, it means you're going to think really big thoughts about God. You're going to think about God, you're going to love to think about God, and, and what, what many people want instead of that is experiences, uh, sensations. Uh, they don't want to think, or they don't want to think hard or think theologically, think about God, and what happens is we pay a price for that. We pay a price for our neglect. Twice over the last 25 years, controversy has erupted in relation to the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Uh, most recently, people giving new perspectives on salvation, which is a threat to the gospel. When you're asked that question, why should God let you into heaven? You're a professing believer. You need to be able to answer biblically. And, and the biblical answer, you can state it in many ways, but it's only because of what Christ has done for me on the cross, which I have received, not because of any good works that I have done, but through faith alone, apart from works, I'm saved. Through faith in Christ alone. But the, con the confusion uh, just continues on. In, in recent history, it's, it's would be a long time ago for some of you. It was when, when uh, I grad the year I graduated college, uh, for me, uh, Pope John Paul II, on September 6, 1985, said this. It would be foolish, as well as presumptuous, to claim to receive forgiveness while doing without the sacrament of penance. Basically what he's saying is, you, you should not claim forgiveness without bringing something to the table, without pitching in in some way. So when you look back, you just look back to the 1500s and you're like, wow, you know, justification by faith was the number one issue of the Protestant Reformation. It's still the number one issue today. Things haven't changed that much. Calvin said it was the principal hinge on which it turned. Luther called it the article on which, by which the church stands or falls. The core issue, it was the core issue of debate between the reformers and the medieval Roman church. Here's an interesting thing to think about. In every season of, of fruitful ministry through the ages, um, you see a renewed emphasis on justification by faith alone. You saw it in the preaching of John Bunyan in the 1600s. You saw it in the preaching of George Whitfield and John Wesley and Jonathan Edwards in the 1700s. You see it in the preaching of Charles Spurgeon in the 1800s. You see it today. J.I. Packer summarized the debate of whether salvation was by grace through faith or not. Here's what he said. Here was the crucial issue. Whether God is the author not merely of justification but also of faith. Whether in the last analysis Christianity is a religion of reliance on God for salvation and all things necessary to it or of self-reliance and self-effort. What is the source and status of faith? Is it the God-given means whereby the God-given justification is received, or is it a condition of justification which is left to man to fulfill? Is it a part of God's gift of salvation, or is it man's own contribution to salvation? Is our salvation holy of God, or does it ultimately depend on something that we do for ourselves? 
The reason why that's so important is if you are a professing believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the way you answer those questions makes a difference in how you live your life and how you share the gospel. So it's very important. So we're going to talk today about sin, about faith, and about good works. We start with sin because Ephesians 2.1 starts that way. In fact, look at that. Look up in Ephesians 2.1. It says, uh, you were dead. Now, I noticed something. I know it's obvious, but it might be easy to miss. I noticed something going through the first 10 verses of Ephesians 2. Paul is addressing the church as a whole. Now, for many of us Western Christians, we, we, hear, we see the word you, and we're like, you're talking about me. But it's in the plural. He's, he's addressing the church as a whole, and obviously needs to be you know, addressed and, and applied to individual believers, but he is speaking about the church to the church. He's addressing them in plural. And it seems to me that as I apply that to my individual life then, it, there, it's much greater and fuller and richer than if it was just addressed to me as an individual. I'm a part of a much bigger whole uh, uh, that God is using together for his purposes. Uh, it's interesting. You, you look at the Greek in, in these first two chapters of Ephesians, and you've got we, us, and you, and we are one throughout Ephesians. It is a, it is a plural. So he's saying to the church, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Now you've got to apply that to your own heart. By the way, a drowned man cannot grab a life preserver. A dead dog cannot jump up and lick your hand. A corpse cannot climb out of a casket. A lifeless body can't resuscitate itself, can't, can't do CPR on itself. A petrified dead rat in my backyard underneath a dog run cannot move. A dead rabbit can't run away from a coyote. A dead possum in the middle of the road can't cross to the other side of the road. Your dead cell phone can't recharge itself. Your dead car battery can't jumpstart itself. Dead is dead. We weren't playing possum. We were dead. We weren't just taking a nap. We were dead. We weren't buried six feet under, alive, with an air hose coming out of the casket. We were dead. We weren't just passed out. We weren't in a coma. We were dead. And if you haven't been made alive by Jesus Christ, you're dead. We are all condemned in our sins. We, we can do nothing, actually, and I know that you tell your kids and your grandkids, don't say shut up, okay? I, I know that we all, we, all, we, we all tell people not to say that, but God actually says it to us in Romans 3.19. It says that every mouth may be closed and all the world become accountable to God. God says, you can do nothing but shut your mouth before me when you realize how sinful you are. Without excuse, without virtue, you stand silent. Uh, our sin condemns us before a holy God. That's the fact of the matter. Well, I think sometimes we're just too familiar. We just throw God's name around as if, you know, He's good with me. He's, he's cool with me. You know, no, if, if, you're, if you're still in your sins, and your sins aren't on Christ, but they're on you, you are dead. Now, we don't want to hear this, do we? We don't like to hear that we're dead. You know how everyone should be self-aware, but everyone isn't? 
Like, like you're self-aware, but there's those other people that are just like, they're not self-aware? Well, everyone should be sin-aware, and everyone isn't. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means all. And faith in Christ is the only answer. Go over to verse 8. This is where we're at today. Go to verse 8. The, we're going to see the faith that saves. We know the sin that condemns. Let's talk about the faith that saves. Verse 8 begins, by grace you have been saved. He's talking to the church in plural. By what grace? By the grace already mentioned. You see it in this passage. We've seen it before in verse 5. By grace you have been saved. It's the same grace. Imagine you're a thief who steals the goods of a rich man and instead of prison, the rich man gives you a gift so valuable you could never repay. And he, and he gets you off the hook. How grateful would you be? Paul is reminding us, as he did in verse 5, that we owe, we owe our salvation 100% to the undeserved favor of God. Grace is the cause of our salvation. God's grace is the cause. So where does faith come in? It says, by grace you have been saved, and it is through faith. So grace is the cause, and faith is, is the channel through which salvation comes. Faith is not a positive work. Faith is not an accomplishment that you do. It's nothing you did. Faith is a passive vehicle that you're traveling in. It's not a quality. It's not a virtue. It's not a faculty. It's not something you produce. Faith is simply a trusting response enabled by the Holy Spirit. By grace you have been saved through faith. Now, faith is often misunderstood as, as man's contribution to his salvation. This is not what you bring to the party, folks. This is not a potluck. Salvation is not a potluck. You're being invited into God's feast, which he has prepared. So Paul adds a qualifier, just in case we miss it, to explain that nothing is of our own doing, but everything is a gift from God. So look at the second part of verse 8. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. You have to ask the question, what is and this referring to? Does it refer to the entire phrase? Or does it refer to just, you know, grace or salvation or faith? And it, it applies to the entire phrase, by grace you have been saved through faith. That's the gift of God. The whole, one person wrote it, said it this way. The whole process comes from nothing that we have done or could do. It's the element of, of givenness applying to faith as well as grace. Uh, faith, is, faith is the direct outcome of hearing the gospel. Romans 10, 17 says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And what we're seeing here is, is an obvious point that salvation is a total gift from God. And it's going to make a difference in how we then look at the rest of this passage. That salvation is a total gift from God, the free gift of God, through faith in Christ. You're freed from the power and penalty of sin. One day you'll be freed from its presence. Won't that be a great day? 
But to, do, to get that, you must believe in Jesus. Now, you know how to get to heaven? You keep believing in Jesus. And, and, and how does that happen? God enables you to persevere and to endure. Because every good gift is of God's grace. Faith is both knowing and believing the gospel to the point of actually acting upon the truth that you hear and know because the truth we know about the gospel is that Jesus died in our place on the cross and he shed his blood for us and he was buried and he rose on the third day and is coming again. And what a true believer does is in light of that, and Jesus said this very clearly in Matthew 16, 24, in light of that, here's what a true believer does. A believer uh, decisively denies himself, takes up his cross and follows Jesus. Uh, as some, some have said that you, what you do is you roll your soul upon Christ. I like that phrase. You roll your soul upon Christ. You, know, you repent of your sins. You renounce your idols. You commit yourself unconditionally to Christ. That's a, a, a proof of true faith. And the question is, do you have true faith? Or are you just saying, yeah, I believe in this idea. James says that the demons believe and they shudder. It's not just saying yes to some idea. Now, if you don't believe in Jesus, I'm going to say yet. My plea to you right now is, in view of your sinful condition, apart from God, under the wrath of God, do what Acts 16.31 says. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. You may have heard that many times and you keep rejecting it. Uh, well, may God open your heart to the gospel right this very moment. The Bible tells us that although we're aware of our sin, when we, when we believe in Jesus, we don't deal with our sin all by ourselves. It was dealt with at the cross. You put your faith in Christ, you don't pay the penalty for your sins. Jesus already paid it at the cross, but your, your sins are either on you or they're on Christ. If they're on you, you're dead in your sin. If they're on Christ, you're alive in Christ. Jesus said in John 5, 24, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life, he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. John 6, 28, Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You know, it's the work of God. God calls us, we don't save ourselves, he awakens dead hearts, he makes them alive, and it's all of grace, and, and you don't want this any other way. If you could determine it, you could also undetermine it. I, I found so much anxiety on the part of professing believers through the years because they wrongly think that they did all the choosing and therefore they can do all the losing of what only God gives. Faith is the mechanism, the means of our salvation and it's not doing it's believing faith is an instrument by which we lay hold of Christ the Savior faith I like the way this is put some people say it this way faith is the empty hand that receives the gift of God faith rests in Jesus Christ now a lot of people will say well you know Faith is kind of a, just a minimalist work. You know, people like to do minimalism nowadays. They say, well, faith is just a minimalist work. It's not. It's not like you just do a little bit to kind of nudge yourself closer to heaven. 
Through faith alone, we're saved. This is what we're talking about. This is what Ephesians 2 is teaching us, that faith is a, is a non-contributory, passive, receptive gift from God. Sinclair Ferguson said it this way, faith has no constructive energy. It is complete reliance on another. It is Christ-directed, not self-directed. It is Christ-reliant, not self-reliant. It involves the abandoning, not the congratulating of self. So what you see here is that there's nothing you could do to earn your salvation. You merely receive it by faith, and even then your faith is a gift of God. We could never make this up. Only God in his infinite wisdom would come up with a plan so amazing and so, and so foolproof. Faith is a receptor, not a contributor. Faith is simply relying on God's promise. And, and in just in case we, we, we didn't get that, he says then in verse 9, not a result of works that no one may boast. Let's look at it again. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So every kind of human self-effort is categorically eliminated, ruled out by this catch-all phrase that you can't congratulate yourself for getting saved, that all the glory goes to God. And it takes away every escape route that our twisted minds might look for that would end in the way of death anyway. And I know that to say that faith is neither of ourselves nor of works is to state the obvious. Next week, we're going to dive deeper into some beautiful gospel truths embedded in Romans and Galatians. But I want to give you just a brief uh, sampler, hors d'oeuvre, a little taste to, get, to, to whet your appetite, okay? We're going to talk about justification that is declared, and we're going to talk about righteousness that is imputed. Justification declared, righteousness imputed. Briefly, I'll, I'll touch on this very briefly right now. Again, more detail next week. But justification declared. If you look over in Romans 3, that's where we're going to be next week, but if you look over in Romans 3, what you'll notice in verse 21, it says that now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith, there it is, that phrase again, through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. There's no distinction, and you probably know this verse, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. What you might not realize is that's in the middle of a sentence you know, there's um, colons and semicolons and commas that, that are bookending uh, that phrase, and it's not a standalone verse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, there's a problem from which you cannot extract yourself. You're, you're in quicksand from which you cannot escape. But it says next that we are justified, New American Standard says freely, justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. We'll look at redemption and propitiation next week, but it is to be received by faith. What justification is, is a judicial act of God. It's the language of the law court. So those lawyers of you out there, uh, your budding lawyers, or people who want to be a lawyer, this is a good word for you. Uh, Romans 3.26 says that God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Well, that is a legal declaration that God is making whereby he pardons your sin and he accepts you as righteous 
in his sight. It's a declaration, not a process. It's done. It's settled. It's like the judge uh, coming down with the verdict. This is the way it is, and it can't be revoked. It's received through faith in Christ, not by performing any works. Justification declared. Now, uh, let me just briefly mention righteousness imputed. That's a different kind of word. We don't use the word imputed a lot. You, don't go the other, you know, the other day I imputed to my kids um, some wisdom. You, know, I, you don't talk like that. Uh, imputed or reckoned. We don't even use that word very often, but the Bible uses it. And, and in Romans 4, you hear about uh, Abraham's faith. Going back to Genesis 15, 6, where it says that Abraham believed God and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. He credited it to him as righteous. That's the word we would use, credited to his account. And now this is an accounting word, so all you CPAs out there, or you uh, budding CPAs, or anyone that uh, did well in math, not like me, um, it's a term from accounting, and it means to have something credited to your account. So Abraham's faith was reckoned, was imputed, was credited as righteousness. Credited to your account, like one day you're like, how did that get in my account? <laughs> you know, most of the time you're like, all of my money went out of my account. Well, one day you wake up and there's like all this money in your account. You're like, how did it get there? Uh, I don't think it's supposed to be there. Well, it's a gift, you know, just enjoy it. It's credited to your account. It's imputed to your account. It's reckoned to you. And the idea here is that reckoned means that the righteousness was credited to Abraham not as a reward of merit, but a free decision of the grace of God. And this is what is extended uh, as righteousness is credited to those who believe in Christ. The reformers, I love that this term, the reformers called it alien righteousness. Those of you who are, you know, fans of aliens and things like that. You know, first hour, the lights dimmed when I said that. I don't, <laughs> not happening. Okay, so there's no aliens in the room today, uh, at least the second hour. Um, but the, the reformers called it alien righteousness, that we receive a righteousness that is not ours. It's from outside of us. The first Corinthians 1.30 says, God made Jesus Christ our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. It's, it's credited to us as if it is ours, but we didn't earn it. We didn't do anything for it. We didn't deserve it. What you see really is two sides of the salvation coin. We'll go back to some math here. So I might need some help from the CPAs in, in the room, but um, one involves subtraction, one involves addition. So subtraction side is forgiveness. Your guilt is taken away. The addition side is imputation, uh, reckoning, crediting. Christ's righteousness is credited, imputed, reckoned to you. So justification is a declaration of your righteousness in Christ. You, you were washed clean by the blood of Christ, there's subtraction, and you were robed in his righteousness, there's addition. Your justification is a complete act of God on your behalf because he loves you. He takes away your guilt, clothes you in Christ's righteousness. It's like you're double wrapped. You're double wrapped in Christ with this double provision. And, and there should be no doubt in our minds how, how adequate, how sufficient, how complete is God's provision for us in Christ. That you will never find true peace unless you grasp this truth that Christ takes all your sins upon himself 
and bestows all his righteousness on you. It's life-altering. It's eternity-altering. Verse 9, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, we, we make all sorts of boasts. Or we come across someone who's very boastful, and, and they get very annoying. But if salvation is absolutely by the unmerited favor of God, then boasting in ourselves is totally out of place. And by the way, if you think that you add anything to the mix, throw yourself a fake news party. It's fake news. Think about this question. Did, did life, as some people would want us to think, arise out of a primordial scum from an ancient pond? A single human cell is so complex, it's impossible to happen by chance. The chances of life arising by chance um, from the smallest atom is nil, zero. And there are two well-known scientists calculated the odds of life forming like that. And here's how they estimated it. There's less than one chance in 10 to the 40,000th power. That's, that's 10 to the 40,000th power is a one with 40,000 zeros after it. Okay, impossible. Now, think about your, your chances of giving yourself eternal life spiritually. Much slimmer than impossible. You know, people are grasping for straws with every ounce of their being, and there's no other way besides faith in Christ. There's no other way. Let's move on to verse 10. Good works that verify. Now, a lot of people view verse 10 as a PS. Like, you know, by the way, if you really want to go deeper, if you want to be really committed, go to verse 10. But if not, just stay with verses 8 and 9. Yeah, that's a misreading of this passage. You've got to go all the way through. And verse 10 says this, we, that's the church, we are his workmanship. His new creatures in Christ, uh, transformed, changed, made new, bought with the price of precious blood. But when he says we are his workmanship, I love that word. It's the Greek word poime, where we get our word poem. Does anyone here like poetry? It's just me. I'm raising my hand. I'm, I'm, I'm bold, okay? Yes. You, now, some of you just don't want to raise your hand all the way. Come on. Beep. Don't. You're not going to get made. You will get made fun of, but it's okay, okay? <laughs> if you like poetry, you like to read it, you write it, all that stuff, great. Me too. There's two of us. Um, a poem is, is something that's made. It's a, it's a work. It's a work of art. And what, what this verse is telling us is that we are God's poem. We are his handiwork. We are his poetic product. We are the beautiful creation of God, the church. It's awesome. He's speaking of the creation of the body of Christ, a unified whole made up of many individual parts through many ages and in many times and used for, the, for his purposes to the praise of his glory. For we, plural, are his singular workmanship created. That word create is, is only used of God and the creative energy he alone can exert, pointing to his new creation in Christ, the church, and we're created in Christ. We're created in Christ. In Christ Jesus, it's emphatic. 
And the good works, the good works uh, are, are what we are created for. Did you notice that? Look at that in verse 10. So we have just been told the good works are not going to save you, but in verse 10 it says we're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. Good works. Now, some people make good works a prerequisite for forgiveness. That's wrong. Some people assume they're an optional part of the Christian life. That's wrong, too. Both of those extremes are wrong. Both radically misunderstand the New Testament teaching. The idea is that bare faith cannot save you. You can't just say, yeah, I believe that and, and not live according to it. And verifying works are necessary proof of salvation. The fruit that shows that there's a root. So just mentally agreeing is not saving faith. Again, as James put it, the, the demons believe and shudder. Works play no part in your securing of salvation, but faith is verified by your works, by your life. Paul and James agree. Now, where, where Martin Luther was very wrong was his view on the book of James. He called it a right, strawy epistle. Like, he didn't like it. He thought that he was negating Paul's teaching of salvation by faith alone. And it, it's exactly in agreement. Paul and James agree. And James is teaching that bare faith alone, simply agreeing to certain statements as being true, don't save you. Faith by itself, when it's not accompanied by a life that actually proves it out, is dead. That's why he said faith without works is dead. James is not denying faith alone. He is talking about empty faith, barren faith, inactive faith, um, dead faith. And what he is pointing out very clearly, and the same thing that Paul points out, is that, that saving faith is, is active and will inevitably produce results. That good works cannot save you from sin, but faith that works gives credence to your testimony. And, and by the way, these, these good works were prepared beforehand. Now, we all love going to fast food restaurants. We'll have the steam table, don't we? We love it. And, and you see food that's been sitting there for maybe quite a while, and there's, you know, soggy hamburgers and... and not crunchy fries and, and other food that might have been sitting there for a while, but it was prepared beforehand. This is not what we are talking about. No, we are talking about something that God prepared way beforehand, but it's not stale. It's always fresh. Here's what it is. Look at uh, Ephesians 1.4. This won't take you long to get to. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Prepared beforehand. God did it way beforehand. What? What did he do? What did he do? Verse 4 even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That's the beforehand. And he prepared beforehand that we would walk in them, live, operate, relate. It's not just mental or intellectual assent. You're a new creature in Christ. You're going to live differently. Verse 10 is not a PS. It's not a by the way. It is an outcome of the entire process it shows the goal of salvation to produce good works that display its reality to the praise of the glory of God's grace that's why Paul said in Philippians 1 6 he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ 
That's why Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the root that is faith. Good works verify faith. Titus says that we ought to learn how to engage in good deeds to meet pressing needs. James says, faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, it's dead. I'll show you my faith by my works. Now, I know how easy it is to think of good works in such a static way, uh, like, hey, it's something I do when I feel an extra burst of energy, or I have some extra resources uh, at my disposal. Um, but if you would just think of good works as trust and obedience, that will help you not, you know, um, not sequester good works over to an area where, where it's only when you feel like it. Good works then would, be, would, would characterize the entire trajectory of your life as a follower of Christ. And, and I'll put your mind at ease. It doesn't mean that you're going to be working nonstop in a soup kitchen or 24-7 teaching Bible studies. What it means is that your mind and your heart and your body and everything about you is so 100% committed to the Lord that the sphere of your operation, the pattern of your life, the flavor of your interactions would be to do good for Jesus and the gospel. Not just to do good for good's sake. Good works prepared beforehand that we should live, operate, walk in them are works that are beneficial for the kingdom of God. And I'm going to speak to myself on this one. If you want to listen in, you can. I think it affects you too. Uh, but here, here it is. I, I couldn't shake this idea this week as I was thinking through this passage. I have got to get over my first world problems. Because we take our first world problems and we magnify them. And everyone's got problems and God cares about everything. But we are... We are really expert at taking our first world problems and magnifying them out to basically eclipse Jesus in our life. And God graciously saves us through the gift of faith alone. And we forget it days on end. And there's hurdles to enjoying faith alone, and the key word is enjoying you know, people will say, what I know about my life and what it looks like, uh, I doubt I'm saved because I measure my life by my life, I measure my salvation by my life experience. Oh, really? So you're going off of works. Some people will say, I have to do something. I can't just accept a gift. I must deserve it. I must earn it. And to that person, the question is, when's enough enough? You're always going to be comparing and trying to determine something. And here's the sad part of all that. You want to live like that? If you're a believer in Jesus, you love Jesus, and you live like that, it doesn't change your identity because Christ sets your identity. It ruins your joy. People who say, I can never be good enough. I never feel good enough to be saved, and I struggle my whole life because I have to earn it and keep it. Well, I hope that today could be the day that you mark down that this is the day I decided to stop believing lies that I'm making up in my head and I'm going to believe the gospel truth. And we all know there's some people trampling on the gospel. Sure, there's going to be a measure of people who do that. I don't, I don't really feel like I know any, at least not in this, in this room. Sure, there's people that will say, I'm a Christian, but they live like hell, right? 
the, uh, the big word for it is antinomianism, misreading the Bible and its teaching on grace to allow a sinful lifestyle. Dietrich Bonhoeffer later called it cheap grace, the abuse of the freedom of the gospel leading one to, to excuse sinful behavior. We just have to remember this. Sin kills. Christ gives life. And your sin is not behavior to be modified. It is, it is to be mortified. It's to be killed. Because by grace, you are saved from sin that condemns through faith in Christ. And it's not of yourselves. It's not a result of works. Whereas workmanship created for good works that verify the faith. And the response, you know what it makes me want to do? Knowing that makes me want to praise God with every ounce of my being. To say, thank you, God, for your grace and mercy and your love. Thank you for the assurance you give me. Do you realize that faith alone means that God chooses and doesn't revoke? He's not going to send you a text one day or an email or a message and say, by the way, we over-reserved, we, we, over we don't have enough spots. You know that uh, if you're an incoming freshman in college, uh, one of your worst nightmares, besides having a really crazy roommate, is accepting the admissions offer and them telling you, uh, sorry, we can't take you now. In fact, um, 499 students planning to attend a local university are facing this reality. In June, uh, excuse me, in July, two months before the fall term begins, 499 incoming freshmen were notified that their offers of admission were rescinded. Took it away. Oh, we miscounted. We, we have too many people. Uh, can't, can't do this. God's not going to do that to you. So you can praise him. You, you want to boast? Boast in Christ. That's what Paul put forth for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I like Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. Psalm 116. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? You could ask yourself this question, how might I create a habit of ongoing praise to God that eclipses my first world problems? Doesn't act like they don't exist, but just minimizes some of the ones that we magnify so much. I'll tell you what else this passage makes me want to do. It makes me want to please God with my life. I want my life to be an exhibit of the value of knowing God. I, I want to live doing good. Um, you know, in our society right now, it's really big to come out to identify, self-identify as what you really are. And I just want to say that there's a lot of Christians that need to come out as Christians because nobody knows. Now, they've been thinking this about you sometimes. They've, they've seen tendencies in your life. They, they see the way you talk and the way you act, and they think, that person may be a follower of Christ, but they don't know for sure. You need tomorrow morning, this afternoon, to come out as a Christian so you can please God in obedience. There's a lot of people who say they're following Christ, and they're not. They have the world all over them. And they need repentance. They need obedience. I think all of us must deal with this question. What part of my life doesn't please God? And how will I resolve right this moment to change, to repent, to break free, to be held accountable, and to not be retrapped? Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. You know, the reformers talked about alien righteousness. I want to talk to you about applied righteousness. 
life spent profitably in good works, slaying the flesh, crucifying the desires with respect to self. Galatians 5.24 says those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That you actually love your neighbor, your neighbor, the one that really lives next door to you or behind you or on the side of you. That you have humility toward God and, and mankind. One last thing this makes me want to do. This passage makes me want to go out and proclaim Christ to everyone I come in contact with. You know the person that looks completely unreachable? Go after them. Befriend them. Don't let them go. Lovingly hound them. Lovingly serve those whom sin is beating down. Me, I was living superstitiously as a high schooler and a young college student. Every day I was reading my horoscope, trying to, you know, not step on a crack and break anybody's back, and uh, I was reading biorhythms and trying to figure out how to live that way, and reading Eastern mysticism and and praying vaguely to God. But I was and I was justifying my sin. I was trying very, very hard to live a moral life. But as as hard as I tried, nothing worked. But the Word of God taught by loving, trusted people that I got to know who loved Jesus and were yielded to him and would not let me go. And over time, I started yearning for what I was hearing uh, to be true in my life. And in 1982, I surrendered my life to Christ. You gotta remember, people are in process. You gotta trust God to work in their hearts. But they're asking this question, either verbally or in their hearts. What must I do to have eternal life? What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be delivered from the guilt of my sin and be reconciled to God? Martin Luther struggled with this question for more than 10 years. July 1505, age 21, almost gets struck by a bolt of lightning, and he's crying out. He sees a horrible vision of fiends in hell, and in terror he cries out, Saint Anne, help me, I will become a monk. He kept his promise. A week later, he's in the monastery, and he wants to search for the assurance of God's love and favor and to escape the terrors of hell and wrath. And he did everything the church told him to do to please God. He fasted. He prayed. He slept without blankets. But we've been doing a lot recently. I know it's been hot. But he, he deprived himself of all worldly comforts and pleasures. And no matter how hard he tried, the, the deeper his guilt got. So he goes to Rome in November 1510, and he tries to find peace with God through the merits of the dead saints, and he views ancient relics, and he, he holds a supposed twig from the burning bush. I thought it burned. Uh, no, it, it didn't get consumed, I guess. You're right. And, uh, and, and he, he touched one of the coins that Judas supposedly paid for betraying Jesus. He attended masses. He visited holy sites. He crawled on his knees up the Scala Sancta, the supposed steps of Pilate's palace, and he said the Lord's Prayer on every single step. And still he was alienated from God. In April 1511, he was transferred uh, to Wittenberg, Germany. He began to seek peace with God through confessing his sins, and boy, did he confess his sins. Up to six hours a day, he would confess his sins, and he was terrified that he would forget even one of them and still no peace with God. He studied the German mystics. They said, just let go and let God surrender all to him. And it would work for a little while, but the burden of his guilt was still upon him. And here's what he said. Here's what he said in his own words. More than once I was driven to the very abyss of despair and wished I had never been born. Love God? I hated him. 
turning point was when he was asked to study for his doctorate and take the chair of biblical studies at the University of Wittenberg. He's an unbeliever. And the more he studied the word of God, the clearer the gospel became. Because the word is powerful. In 1513, he taught the Psalms. In 1515, he taught Romans. In 1516, he taught Galatians. But he continued to wrestle with the phrase, the righteousness of God. He misunderstood it. He said, well, God is exacting just retribution. He's exacting his pound of flesh, the debt that everyone owes. And so he was preparing his, his lectures for his students, and all of a sudden, at long last, he understands the gospel. Here's what he says in his own words, and then we'll close. I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans, and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God, because I took it to mean the justice whereby God is just and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience with no confidence. I did not love a just, angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the righteousness of God in the statement the just shall live by faith. I grasped the righteousness of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors into paradise and the whole of scripture took on new meaning and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. Because God graciously saves us through the gift of faith alone. Lord, thank you that you do that. Thank you, Lord, that it is not by our own doing. Thank you, Lord, that your wonderful grace, your wonderful mercy saves us, makes us want to praise you and please you and, and, and proclaim the gospel to anyone who will hear. Thank you, Lord, that it is to the one who does not work but believes who is saved. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.